0: I uh, want to apologize, to everybody, for messing up one of the songs today. It's our new song, uh, and I thought I remembered that part, but I got it wrong. So, yeah. Well, God forgave me. I hope you will too. <laughs> Confess your faults. Well, this morning we're conducting the believe, uh, concluding the belief series. Another mistake. Expect several more mistakes today. (laughs) It's on the agenda. We started these Bible lessons um, way back in September last year. Uh, We wanted to know what we believe, why we believe it, and what difference that makes. (laughs) And and so it's been a really good study on a a lot of different topics, 30 different weeks we've been on this. And I hope the series has been as, as beneficial to you as it has been to me um, our, our Bible study has, has really benefited from that and the discussion that happens each week. And I hope you've been able to jump in on it and be, be with us uh, as we've gone through Believe. The past nine weeks have been especially good as we've been studying the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this morning we finished the entire 30 weeks with a lesson on humility, which is not one of the fruits of the Spirit, but it is. Uh, It's not in the list. And why do we finish with humility? Because humility before God and others is key to our usefulness, to to the impact that we can have for God in this world. And if, if we approach all of this through pride and arrogance, we will not succeed. But if we're able to humble ourselves before God, it makes all the difference. So we need to understand where we fit into God's plan, into God's mission. And we fit at a place of humility, a place of servanthood. Our key verse today comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian believers, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 are the key verses. And Paul told them this he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we're going to look further into that description of humility in just a few minutes, but I want you to to realize with me what Paul says in Philippians 2 right right as he finishes, as he goes into this statement, be humble, consider the needs of others. Uh, Then he says, look at the example Philippians 2, 5-8 says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Now, I don't know if you can do this. I, I struggle doing this. I, I hope that we could begin to understand what Jesus did by denying Himself the power, the majesty, the authority that He had as the Son of God. He was co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit from from eternity, from before this world was ever created. He was co-equal with God the Father. And yet he gave all of that up so that he could come to this earth and become a human being like us, subject to all the things that our bodies are subject to. and That's a lot. And subject even to sin. And yet he was without sin. What's more, he came to take on the role and the very nature of of a servant. Look that up sometimes. See what that's, that's talking about there? That he he embodied, he embraced, he became our servant. And then if that were not enough, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, one of the most horrendous ways a person could ever die. That's, that's just staggering to think about. If you, if you allow your mind to go there for a little while, you'll be lost in that thought for a while that Jesus would give all that up and become our servant and die. The Apostle Paul had learned humility from Jesus, so he he brings this up in this discussion with the Philippian believers. Uh, think about Paul's story. We meet him back in the book of Acts as Saul, that's his name then, he's a young man climbing up the Jewish ladder of success, and he had high hopes to get to the very top. When we are first introduced to Saul in Acts 7, he is overseeing Stephen's execution—the first person to die for Christian faith—is Stephen, and Saul is there, kind of the ringleader, holding the coats of the other guys, throwing the stones. And and you know he's glad to see Stephen die. Acts eight three says that Saul began to destroy the church from that time on, and going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Why did Saul do that? Because Saul was proud. He proud of his heritage, proud of his ability, but that all blinded him so that he could not see that Jesus was the Messiah that God had sent. So Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, as you know, in Acts, and he blinded Saul so that he could see what he was doing. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, I'll, just, I'll just take away your physical vision so that you have to stop and think what your spiritual vision should be seen. And when he did this, he could see who Jesus was. Being blinded for three days will humble almost anybody. And that's what it did for Saul. Others had to guide him into town. Someone had to take care of him. He was virtually helpless when he had never been helpless before, I imagine. He suddenly found himself in a lower position than when he was on his high horse. You know, criticism and condemnation and persecution against this this wayward group of people called the followers of the way. Well, after Ananias came for God to to give Saul God's message of salvation and that God was going to use Saul in a mighty way, Saul repented of his sins, and he was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of his sins. He tells this story in Acts chapter 9 and 16, later again, I think 22, somewhere in there. He keeps telling this story because it's so powerful, where he radically was changed from this prideful man seeking the destruction of Christianity to the greatest proponent Christianity had at that time and many other times. God gave Saul a chance to start his life again, this time in humility. And soon his name was changed to Paul, and he began preaching in the Jewish synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And he spent the rest of his life promoting Jesus' agenda rather than his own. Dramatic change. And that is the same change that God wants to bring to our lives. Now, let's go back and read Philippians 2, 3, and 4 again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You know, when Paul admonished the Philippian church about humility, he also defined it here, didn't he? Look at, look at this definition. First of all, humility does not act from selfish ambition. You take away that selfishness as an equation, as a, as a formula. It does not act there. That is not where its actions come from. Secondly, humility counts others as more significant than oneself. And it doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself, you don't provide for your family he says, look out to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others as more important than yours, as more significant than yours, as as what God wants you to do with your life. Don't worry so much about yourself. Think about the people around you. Thirdly, humility looks to the interest of others, not just to our own. We see many evidence of Jesus' humility, don't we? Perhaps none of them is more telling than what he did on the night he was betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the night before he was crucified on a Roman cross, just as he had predicted it would happen. And so we're going to go to John 13 this morning. We want to spend, really, the majority of our time there now in John 13. If you have a Bible, pull it out. There's some in the seats there. And we'll put as many of the words as we can up here on the screen also. But it would really be good for you to keep flipping back and forth, particularly if you have your own Bible. This is Thursday night of a grueling, long, difficult week. We call it Passion Week. Holy Week. The week had begun with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, not on a white stallion. Not on an animal that was used to warfare and conquering. But this little foal that had never been ridden on. He was glorified, however, by thousands of people as they waved palm branches and sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and other things. And yet the religious leaders who hated him came up and they said, tell these people to be quiet. Tell your followers to be quiet. Rebuke them. They should only be praising God, in other words. And Jesus said, you know, if they keep quiet, the very stones are going to cry out. Praise to me. This is the time to praise Jesus. Well, the week begins, and all week long, the jealous religious leaders pester him and provoke him with questions and with criticism, trying over and over again to catch him in a trap. And so it's a difficult week. They were unsuccessful in doing this, of course. So they were really glad when Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples came to him and said, I'll sell him out for just 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. That Thursday night, as Jesus and his disciples prepared to have their Passover Seder, a little bit ahead of else's schedule, he knew what Judas had done. In fact, the other Gospels tell us Jesus confronted them and says, one of you is going to betray me tonight. I know that. He knew that the wheels were set in motion for him to die the very next day. He knew that his death on the cross was unavoidable. Not because of man, but because this was God's plan. This is why he came. This is what he was there for. And so, follow along as I read from John 13, verses 1-5. through It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Every time I read this message, I'm struck by the the simple way that John describes what was going on in Jesus' head. It's like we're given the ability to read his mind, to see what he's thinking, to read his thoughts. Let's look back at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Uh, Passover was when spotless lambs had been killed to provide protection from the death angel back in the land of Egypt. Remember that? This is what they're commemorating. That God saved them when they killed the lamb and they put the lamb's blood on the door. And the angel passed over them and kept them safe. And now Jesus... Was going to become the supreme, once for all, Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, not just the Jewish nation, but the sins of the entire world. He knew, John says, that he was about to leave this world. As soon as he accomplished this, he was going to leave and go back to his father. But first, he had to give his life. And so, John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he he, he loved them to the full extent that he could possibly love them. He finished the mission. He proved his love. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus knew what Judas had agreed to do. And then verse 3 makes an interesting, poignant contrast between Jesus' thoughts and his awareness of who he was and then what he did. What a contrast. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Nothing could escape his grasp. Nothing could escape his control. He had all power at his fingertips. He knew that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. Man couldn't do anything about that. He had come on a holy mission, and it was about to be completed, so he could return home and be glorified forever, never to be humbled again. And yet, look at verses 4 and 5. So, a big so there, he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, his teacher's robes, his rabbi garment, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now what's wrapped around him? Nothing. I mean, this is a humbling, humbling act of service. Can we truly grasp what going on in Jesus' mind at this time. Can we understand what he's truly doing when he took off his robe and picked up the water basin and towel and began to wash the dirty, stinky feet of these disciples? Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Maybe he glanced at Judas right then. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. How many of us here this morning have ever participated in a foot-washing service? You've never done that? Raise your hands. Uh, many of you probably not had that opportunity. Um, can you imagine how you would feel if I suddenly brought out some bowls of water? That okay, we're gonna wash feet this morning. You're thinking, man, I should have taken a shower today. You know? I should have gone and got that pedicure I was thinking about. You know? I don't want anybody to see my feet, you know. That's the last I want people to see about me. I cover my feet. And you know, this is this is not an easy thing in our culture where we take showers almost every day and we have shoes to wear and socks, and you know, we do do much better than people that are living in a culture where you're walking dusty roads every day in sandals or barefoot, even worse. Imagine the feet of the disciples. They worked barefoot in those boats, they were fishing, or Maybe they walked the, all of them you know, some pretty miserable places and didn't have the best footwear. And you show up, the rest of your body is clean, Jesus said, but your feet are still dirty because you got here tonight. You walked over from where we were staying. And that's how he washed these feet. Do we get what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples? Do we see how he was asking us to humble ourselves for others the same way he did? Do we see that Jesus totally, absolutely obeyed God. Didn't matter what it took. Didn't matter what he had to do. He was in it. He was there. He was doing whatever the Father commanded him to do. The servant is not greater than his master. So when the master becomes a servant, where does that leave the servant? (laughs) We too must learn to serve and obey God wholeheartedly without reservation, without pride, without selfishness. We must keep in mind that that this is so countercultural. It wasn't that day. The Romans, you know, they, they had no use for humility. The Greeks despised manual labor. And in our culture, servants put at the bottom of the list. And there's slavery going on in this culture Jesus is part of. There's indentured servants, there's people that are not being paid for the service that they do, at least not very well, just barely surviving. These are the people who did the foot washing. And Jesus became one of them. So when Jesus sat back at the table, he asked his followers whether they understood. And then he told them to do the same. Many have come to view a humble Christian as a virtual doormat for others. I think that's what Jesus is wanting us to do. Just let people run all over you. Let people do whatever they want to you. And they're the same people that probably think meekness is weakness. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's not. Some of the strongest people you ever find are the people that are the servants of others. Some of the strongest people you'll ever find in the faith are people that humble themselves and give and sacrifice and take it for others. Humility has nothing to do with humiliation. It's not about low self-esteem or lack of confidence. Jesus certainly didn't suffer from any of these things, and yet he lived a life of complete humility. And when we find that we have a strong sense of self-worth and a secure position of an identity in Christ because of Christ, then we don't care what we have to do. We don't care what we're called to do. We don't care about the circumstances. We don't care about the... The situations and, and the, the excesses or the, the, uh, the lack that we may have, whether we're in abundance or in poverty, no longer matters because our security is not found in our things. It's not found in our lifestyle. It's not found in whether we possess many things or we possess nothing. It's found in Christ. And then we can be satisfied. Then we can be at peace. We can be at rest we may ask, how is Jesus able to humble himself in this way? How can we do the same? Ken Boa, in a book called Conform to His Image, shares an insight into why Jesus, in his humanity, was able to humble himself. It goes back to those first few things that John said. He knew where his dignity came from, he knew where his power came from. Father had given him everything in his hands. He knew his significance, his identity, that he had come from God and he was going back to God. He knew his security. He knew his destiny. And these are the same things that as believers, as followers of Christ, when God's people know that our dignity and our power and our significance and our identity and our security and our destiny are rooted in this limitless, unconditional love that God has for us, then we can ask for a towel instead of a title. And it's okay to serve. One time when Jesus was attending a dinner where people were jockeying for the best seats, remember, he told them it is better if you go to a place like that to seek the low seat, the lowest place there, and then maybe be reinvited invited to, to relocate to a better place. He summed up in his teaching there with these words, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You may not even be exalted ever in this life because you serve Christ. But you will certainly be rewarded by God for that. And God will see that you didn't care about those things. All you cared about was serving others and obeying God. So countercultural. If you say this another way, you can say, you know, it's not normal to do this. But are we seeking to be normal? Are we seeking to follow Jesus? We're not here to learn about becoming normal. We're here to learn about becoming more like Jesus. And that's what we want. God knows that I've got a long way to go in this. I suppose some of you at least do also. But we have a map, don't we? We have a way laid out for us. We have examples set for us. And if we want to be more like Jesus, then humility is going to be part of that. Perhaps you need something more specific today. Some people you know like to have a little bit, three points in a sermon to hang your hats on I, I saw something from Dallas Willard that I really liked. Uh, he taught a lot about spiritual transformation in the life of believers, and he once gave this following advice. I'll just capitalize that real quick. You may want to write this down. How do you develop humility in your life? What does it look like? First of all, he says, never pretend. Don't pretend. You know, just, just be who you are. Be yourself. We all you know, face moments when we're tempted to claim knowledge that we don't have or talents we don't possess. We make quick promises we know we can't keep because that's easier. We pretend. True humility, however, claims nothing more or less than truth. We should never pretend to be something or someone we are not. You know, If we belong to Christ, if we live for Christ... That's enough. Why pretend? Why pretend to be someone you're not? Secondly, never presume. So often we think we know what others are feeling or, or we act as if we can read their minds. You know, We see motives behind what they're doing. Humility doesn't do that. Humility doesn't pass judgment on why people do what they do or why they say what they say. The humble person realizes you can only see what's on the outside of a person. It's only God that sees into the heart. So humility refrains from snap judgments or hasty conclusions or some kind of a negative assumption about somebody. You know, give people space. Give give them that freedom to be what they are. It's God that's going to to bring something to their life, not you. So humility simply obeys God, doesn't presume. Does whatever God says to do, knowing that God will hold each of us accountable for our actions. And that's not my business my business is to love and to serve and to obey thirdly humility never pushes humility waits for the lord to move first you know, i want action now i want results now you know that that's pride but humility says you know this is the lord this is what he's doing i'm just here for him i'm just here with him sometimes we get into trouble because we try to force people to do whatever we want we may think we can control them we may yell at them we may may nag them, we may make critical comments or, or maybe even resort to you know physical or verbal violence, you know, to, to get our own way. Humility doesn't do that. None of us want to be treated that way. People want to be led. They don't want to be pushed. And they want the freedom to think things through on their own, to come to their own conclusions. So humility allows for that to happen and say, God, this this is yours. This is your timing. This is your way. I'm just here. I'm here beside you to do whatever you want me to do. This is the path to humility. Never pretend, never presume, never push. And this is the path of Jesus. We want to live, think, and behave as Jesus did. It is the path of humility. We must walk. In 1884, King Humbert of Italy was awakened at midnight by a messenger informing him that an epidemic of cholera had broken out in Naples in Italy. Though the king was scheduled to be in Monza the next day for a magnificent reception given in his honor, he telegraphed his host, Banquet at Monza, cholera at Naples. I am going to Naples. If you don't see me again, goodbye. What a leader. John Stoddard tells what happened from there. On reaching Naples, King Humbert found only the common people at the station to greet him. The rich, the aristocracy, even the most of the officials of the town had fled. The king, however, did not care for that. It was the people he had come to save. And for weeks he worked incessantly to check the plague and to relieve the sufferers. He entered the hospitals. He took the hands of the sick and the dying into his own and, by his example, shamed others into duty. After a week, one of his ministers came to him and said, Your Majesty, there were 3,400 cases of cholera yesterday. This is getting to be alarming. You need to leave. Why don't you return to Rome? And the king replied, you may go if you like. I shall remain till I see Naples free from cholera. And he kept his word. When a king descends his throne to serve those he rules and to risk his life, it is the best picture of the meaning of humility, isn't it? King Humbert was still the king whether he was sitting on the throne in Rome or serving on his knees in the cholera ward in Naples. There he was the king. He knew his mission was from God, and his mission was to serve his people, not to be honored by them. In most kingdoms, the people offer their lives to save the king. But our king, King Jesus, offered his life to save the people. Imagine this morning that we have not one basin of water in front of us, but two. One is the basin that Jesus used at the Last Supper with his disciples. The second is another basin used by the Roman governor named Pilate. As he washed his hands of Jesus' condemnation on the very day he sentenced him to death. One is in John 13, the other is in Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-four. Jesus took the first basin and he washed his feet of his disciples. A totally selfless act of love and service to others. But Pilate, washing his own hands, made a feeble attempt, a selfish attempt to relieve his own guilt and to place blame on others because he was not willing to do what God did needed him to do. One basin symbolized the selfless act of humility to and compassion for the needs of others. The other symbolized the selfish attempt to free oneself of guilt, condemnation, responsibility. Which basin will we use this morning? Which basin represents your life and mine? Which basin represents Your love for God and for people around us, we must choose. And when we choose to serve, God will use us in a great, great way. Because James tells us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And God's grace will pour into and through the life of the person who humbles himself before God and others. will you humble yourself before God today? That's the question. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you have given so freely. We thank you for Jesus, your Son, co-equal with you, who gave up all his glory and majesty and dominion and power to come and become one of us, to be Become not only a human, but a servant among humans, who gave his life. Father, thank you for the opportunity to serve you. We don't deserve to be in your family. We don't deserve to uh, even be lifted up by you for anything. But by your grace, you have chosen to do that. By by your grace, you've brought us into your household. You've made us joint heirs with Christ. But help us not to see that as privilege and entitlement and a responsibility-free life. Just to to think that this privilege of being saved means we can coast from here on in to heaven. Lord, you've called us to serve. You've called us to humble ourselves. And to realize that our identity, our security, our confidence, our destiny, all of these things are wrapped up in you, not in ourselves. And now that we belong to you, now that we belong to Jesus, we can serve with joy. We can serve freely. We don't have to worry about how much we have or don't have. We don't have to worry even about... Uh, where our next meal comes from, and whether we have a roof over our heads. All those things are so important in this world. But to us, the only thing important is to serve you, to love you, to obey you. And may you be praised through our lives. Uh, Bless each of us now, Lord, as we examine, as we evaluate ourselves. Help us to be honest. Help us to be true as we work through these things with you. Grow us, Lord. Empower us. Help us to live every day for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) What do you believe? Why do you believe it? What difference does it make? That's what this whole series has been about. Let's sing together what we believe. Let's sing our conviction to the Lord today. And uh, may we be determined that as we go forth this week, We will serve God and serve others. Would you stand with us, please?